Before we start today's episode, today's show is about how the Marauders have changed over time and where they could go in M20. Marauders throughout many editions are tied to mental illness, so please note we discuss how they've been portrayed, which includes some discussions of said mental illness. Also, Travis drops a bunch of F-bombs because he's got strong feelings about things. And with that, on with the show. Hi, Mage fans, this is your host Terry with Mage the Podcast, and today we're talking about Marauders, and more or less where they've been and where they could go in M20. My guest today is Travis Legg, developer for Mage the Ascension, and my boss for Lore of the Traditions. So I've dressed very nice in the studio that I don't have today, and just as a note, we will be talking as fans. We are not talking as writers or developers, we don't know of any Marauder product, book, in, in in process, so we are we are viewing this as an opportunity for us as community members to talk about what we think could be interesting. So, Travis, how you doing? Oh, I am wonderful. I'm still riding the high of the Lore of the Traditions Kickstarter, and I want to thank your audience uh, specifically for all of their support of that. Not only in backing it, but in just talking about it, getting the word out, engaging about it. Thank you. So yeah, so so far so good. Things are are going along nicely. Um, to, to kind of frame this, I originally never had a real fondness for the Marauders. They didn't make sense for me mm-hmm. as a person. Then, about 10 years ago, I had a, a very serious medical condition that resulted in me experiencing uh, visual and auditory hallucinations. And that brought a lot of things into stark focus, that feeling that occurs when there is something there that not everyone agrees is there and the sheer sense of alienation that that can create, that that is something previously I would have found maybe funny in kind of that childish puerile way. But as having gone through the other side, I'm like, oh. Yeah, it's it, horrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. But it's Absolutely. one of those things where I kind of got out the other side of it, which which I'm pleased and not everyone does, sadly. What draws you, before we do the Terry's grand history of the Marauders, because I'm that guy, what sure. kind of draws you to them? This topic came about because when we were talking for Lore of the Traditions, someone was like, the Marauders, and Travis's reflexive resa- response was, I have thoughts. Yeah. Um, and when real. I hear someone yeah. yell, I have thoughts, and mage, <laughs> and they've been a developer, I send a podcast invite. So, <laughs> so Makes total so, sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm somewhat opportunistic in that regard. So what kind of is your draw to them? Oh, I think a couple things, really. I am drawn to characters that have a one might say i guess mental illness um for lack of a better term component to them partially just due to the struggles that not only i but also members of my family have gone through i find it very compelling to view them through the lens of kind of there but for the grace of god go i for mages right Mm -hmm. because really when you look at it marauders are a lot of things right but one of the things you can boil them down to one of the perspectives you can take when you're looking at them is they are just any other mage dialed up to 11 they believe so strongly in their paradigm that it is leaking out of their own self their own being and warping their existence to accommodate those beliefs. And to me, that's interesting. The fact that it can, it's a state that can be attained as a result of, of pride, um, of hubris, as it were. That's an interesting story for sure for Mage, but there are so many other things that might trigger it that I also find uh, interesting. And 
when I was working on uh, Truth Beyond Paradox, uh, the short story I did for that, you know, I did a, I, I wrote a story, uh, ultimately, spoiler, the guy turns into a marauder. And the thing that, drive, that drives him to that extreme, to that choice, to that deliberate decision to do that uh, is grief. But, you know, so it can be a thing, in my mind, it can be a thing that you walk into. It can be a thing that creeps up on you. Can be a thing that you are in long before you ever realize it, and it, it offers. There's some compelling thoughts. I mean, I, as a person who is, I guess, uh, average to slightly below average mental stability, <laughs> um, uh, I have frequently in my life questioned just how much of my own perception of the way things are is true, and I think that stories about questioning that or the absence of questioning that are both uh, very compelling. So we now, at this point, speak somewhat from experience, but not as experts. So please keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because the, the Marauders, like many groups in Mage, have changed considerably across editions. In first edition core, like the first Mage book, we right. have at least three contradictory visions of who they are, which may be appropriate. Like literally the first passage they say is, um, besides the ruthless Texomancers, Mage must overcome insane Marauders, cunning demons, and inscrutable paradox spirits. The first lengthier bit it says, indeed, uncontrolled dynamic force is an undesirable as the dystopian vision in the dystopian vision of the technomancers. Certain bizarre mages known only as marauders embody such chaos. They seek to destroy the work of the technomancers and indeed any semblance of order and stability. They would see the world scattered to the wind. Then in the glossary, it says marauder, an utterly unpredictable mage who has turned to chaos Marauders believe in personal ascension and a return to the age of legend. And this idea that they want to return to this age of legend comes up again and again. And it's also indicated that one of the reasons why the, the technocracy hates the traditions is they are kept off for the earth by the technocracy. Traditionalist activity can let them through, which is partially why the technocracy hunt, hunts them. And they also are indicated as scouring the world for mage lore, which is something in 1E was much more centered that magical knowledge was out there and could be accrued and that would make you more powerful as opposed to it just being a, a didactic aid. Um, right. They had like uh, study points. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You had, you had different XP and you could get background benefits to it and all sorts of stuff. And it worked regardless of your paradigm. To me, that one of the things that I thought was interesting is in 1E, Marauders quite simply wanted to weaken the threads of reality by sowing chaos and confusion. They make reality easier to them to change. It is interesting that in later in Ascension, that is suggested that as a immune response, reality actually tightens caused by people's fear. So you kind of have that option to go opposite directions. And this kind of reminds me of, have you ever played any gumshoe games? Oh, are those the um, Pelgrane, like Trail game? of Cthulhu? Yeah, um, I don't know that I have. Yeah, the the one I, I'm still trying to grab someone for are is the Esoterrorists, who are a group that just try and sow chaos. The idea is to loosen the threads of reality so their Dark Lords can go through. So it's kind of this combination of the Nufandi uh, and Marauders, and you're a member of the Ordo Veritatis, which is trying to to stop them. And, and each group kind of has a 
power that they're going for in fear. The technocracy sows fear to force people into stability. Fear makes it easier for the Nefandi to tempt mortals, and fear supposedly loosens the strictures of reality. And that's kind of the introduction in 1E. We get the first idea of quiet. We get the first idea that they're trying to bring back a golden age. And because this is mage, their view is very much changed already by the Book of Madness, which also comes out before part 2E, where it says... Uh, marauders trace back to those who inhabited the wilderness outside of villages. Marauders are capable of summoning and binding paradox spirits, which we never get to see again, which I still think would be cool if it ever happened. Sure. Um, it also gives the idea that marauder quiet is infectious, that when they raid a chantry, they can create converts. And it reinforces for the first of many times that the avatar stays the sane and is changing reality to match the mage's expectations. So you get this paradoxical thing that like, if the question of insanity is, does reality match what you think it should, marauders are the most sane people out there, but only because their avatars are are, are forcing that change. Right. Um, we also get the idea that they are aligned with werewolves. This comes up a bunch in Book of Madness where it's like, oh yeah, not just werewolves, but the Grawl and the uh, Cult of Ecstasy and the Gangrel. And I'm like, that's an interesting collection of werewolves. So sitting here, uh, you know, 30 years later with the benefit of hindsight, though I was certainly not working on any of those books at the time, I think that a lot of that was due to first edition mages sort of attempt to cosmologically follow werewolf. You know, if you look at the first published adventure for mage loom of fate, right. It's a werewolf adventure that has some wizards in it. And it, and it very much takes that try at the worm wild weaver thing, mm -hmm. takes that to heart and really embodies that really embodies the positions of the traditions, the technocracy and the marauders in the, that sort of greater context. And I think one of the smartest development decisions that was made uh, when they did Mage second edition was to say, wait a second, reality is about perception. The werewolves are just perceiving the umbra this, this way. And because their perceptions are static, the umbra always functions this way for them. Mages aren't limited to that. So why are we limiting mages to that? And let's take a different direction. And I think it worked overall because there are so many of those strictures that are implied by the worm wild weaver triad and the way that that manifests in the world of darkness that really once freed of the, of that, the, the mage factions, I think really started to become what they are because like the technocracy as presented in first edition are almost anti-mages right they're they're very like everything is about sterility and rote performance and the things being repeatable and and being a lack of variance or a lack of vision it's kind of everything that we're told throughout mage mages aren't whereas the technocracy as they're presented post you know 2e and beyond they're still capable of creative thought they're still capable you know they require it they're just looking at the world through a different perspective so that's as much as like my love for mage is born in first edition and my love for mage started in first edition uh looking back on it yeah i'm, I'm super glad that second edition came along and changed things up because it was a very different game a little bit of a different beast yeah and uh Although we, luckily we do get the, the, the quiet chart coming in in Book of Madness, which is what is the difference between you and reality? And quiet one is a small, consistent difference. And I don't know about you, but I think every mage based on this chart is at least at quiet one. It is hard for me to, to look at someone who is very strictly paradigmatic and not see their interpretation of the world at least 
coming in around the one. Uh, like we have Medea, who has he, our Marauder Oracle, six points of life, that has, who just has a quiet two for thinking everything is still ancient Greece. Madame Zhao is has a quiet of three. One of the characters whose names escape me is quiet four because he thinks everything will turn out okay. Well, that's that's a commentary on the world of darkness. Is that um, uh, Jeremy? Uh, but the, the one who's the head of kind of the biggest marauder uh, group. So you have the the Butcher Street regulars in the Umbral Underground. Uh, one is led by Robert Davenport. The other Robert one Davenport. Is, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, he he has a quiet of one. He merely thinks that his family is still alive, right. um, and he gets very angry. Anyone points out points that out otherwise. I was conflating him with Jeremy Jeremy McNeil, who's a bruja. Uh, the character that I am thinking of is Mr. Nicholas. He is the one that thinks everything will turn out okay. As Travis said, we get what is probably my one of the most interesting characters to me in all of Mage in the form of Robert Davenport, who is a character who awakens in a moment where the technocracy tries to kill him. All lights in the intersection turn red, and in that moment of awakening, as he sees his family being destroyed, his avatar reaches out and says no, and is immediately wrapped in quiet. And we kind of get this this dissonance between the the characters we are constantly told that mages can go marauder but almost all the marauders we meet are mages who awoke as marauders and that to me that difference between the two in the same way that you can be a witter slanter you can be a barabbi for the nefandis um that is something that to me never really um got uh established um, we also get Stephen of Warwick, who is perfectly, who is a mundane mortal, all but about twelve or sixteen days of the year, and the rest of the time he is a fully awakened mage that is a marauder, that is a champion medievalist, and again, that is an interesting, different model that is given. They drop the idea that the marauders don't want to return to the mythic age. So again, within the same edition, they contradict right. themselves. So this is not a criticism, but whenever someone says, "Well, this edition of Mage says this," I'm like, eh, even even within it, it's hard to do. Right. It says this um, and this, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try and do my homework. Well, like I said, I mean, you know, when the when I was first introduced to Mage, I told I think I said this in the last time I was on the show, a friend handed me the book and said, be careful, not only does it read in circles, but it reads in misleading circles. <laughs> um, <laughs> especially Mage First Edition, that was absolutely true. We also get established in late 1E that the true enemy of the Marauders is not necessarily the technocracy, but even further the Nefandi. And I find that kind of interesting. To me, it had this idea that, well, the technocracy seems much more powerful than the traditions, and the Nefandi are terrible, so what can we do to kind of balance that out? Well, we're going to add uh, the, the Marauders as this kind of unreliable other thing that traditionalists may be able to survive if they are cunning, like a, a tornado that you can negotiate with, seemingly. Second edition changes this. It becomes much more about mages wrapping themselves up in their quiet. In the Book of Mirrors in second edition, they introduce that Celestines allow this to happen. They make deals with certain mages that, ins that allow them to become these other things. And like must, much of the Book of Mirrors, that is never addressed again. Much <laughs> like Richard Dadsky's statement that's like, oh yeah, Garul woke up, which is why this is going to happen. And you're like, and that's why the Nefandi were powerless. I'm like, nothing else ever confirms that. But if Richard Dadsky says it, you know what? It's canon at my table. 
Hooray, uh, continuity. Um, <laughs> we do get much more detail, though, about the types of marauders that you can get. Basically, sometimes it is a group that awakens together. Sometimes it is a group that has spread its quiet. Amnesiacs try and recreate a past life. The dead men believe that they are in an afterlife and draw others into their heavens and hells. We get the idea of fusions, which share quiet. We get a cabal, which is a bunch of marauders that are all marauders. And they're like, well, our quiets work together and we have a similar goal, so let's do it. And then you get this interesting thing called a conflux, which is marauders who run into each other whose avid avatars kind of influence and shared notes because the avatar stays sane and kind of gets to come out and play more so than normal, which is also a thing that we never really get information on. But again, even in second edition, it very much confirms that the avatar is entirely sane. That kind of brings us through until Revised, which is kind of ironic because Revised gives us the most detailed Marauder rules and at the same time says the Marauders are mostly gone. We get the idea that they have a quiet rating, they have a permanent quiet, and then they have a temporary quiet, and it can raise and lower but never go below their permanent, that their ability to change the world is determined by their sphere levels and uh, their level of resonance. So resonance indicates the thoroughness, spheres indicate the degree of changes that they make, and that they have this reality bubble that just follows them and rewrites things as they go, and that only mages really notice this happening. So this kind of allows for a type of hidden madness made manifest, which... Yeah, it, yeah. when I first read that, it reminded me a lot of the scene in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where the infinite improbability drive goes off, and like, you know, the potted plant turns into a sperm whale and is like, you know, what's that rushing up at me? Oh, it's round and big. I'm going to call it ground, and then turn, you know, yeah, nice. Um, like that's kind of what I I, I imagine uh, marauders in that context to be just a walking infinite and probability drive, you know. And as they walk through, or like you might imagine, like in a cartoon where the shift, this abrupt shift happens, everything changes for a second and then drops back down to normal. And at best, people just kind of do a double take and then move on with their lives, which is cool. I don't know that it's particularly compelling mm -hmm. from a storytelling perspective, and that's. My biggest issue, I think, with the revised. Well, aside from like all the all the revised meta plot baggage comes along with. That's my biggest issue with. Uh, One of the things I find really interesting about it is it gives mages access to something that is going around that mortals do not notice and that may not even affect them. It's kind of right. got this like they live vibe to it that there is now this thing you didn't see before. And it may not actually change anything in most cases as mortals effortlessly walk in and walk out of a Marauder reality sink. And I think it raises a bunch of interesting questions of like, since this is just now growth of resonance and them being willing to let their magic go, like what fundamentally is the difference between a traditionalist who very much wants to see more room in reality for other points of view and a Marauder? Is it just a tradition of one? Well, and that, and another thing that, another question that that immediately sparks to me, because in my mind, and this is a reason that I'm an awesome mage ST or a reason I'm a terrible <laughs> one, I'm not sure which, but um, the most interesting thing to me about mage period is paradox. The thing that it immediately says to me, the thing that I've let my players get away with the table for 20 years is if you're inside of a marauder's reality bubble and they are doing their business and and real the rules of reality are different in here now if you can latch onto their paradigm if you can key into their paradigm if you can figure out the rules there and you can craft your magic to apply to those rules you're just as coincidental as they are now can you keep your shit together long enough to figure that out 
you know, that's question one, right? Um, and do the paradigms align? But yeah, I think that uh, that's what it says. That's that's what it implies to me is that that you could theoretically piggyback on their uh, little bubble of quiet. The problem I ultimately have with that in M20 is we get the idea that it is very hard to pick up new paradigms, instruments, and practices. So what does it mean to be able to, I think it raises a lot of cosmic questions about that. To me, it is analogous to saying, well, if I can ape what this priest does, I can do magic the same way. I can faith heal just like him, but I don't think that's actually supported in mage. I mean, marauders kind of make it different, but to me, it is that first step. We have real world examples of that though. You know, look at Santeria, for example. I mean, that's a, it's a real world example of taking uh, one set of beliefs, couching them in the clothing of another set of beliefs. Now, this was done for completely different reasons, but I think it's just as applicable, right? Now, again, it comes down to, because I'm very much, when I'm running Mage, as anybody who's probably ever seen me run an actual play will know, I am a negotiator. Uh, as a storyteller, if you can talk me and if you can sell me on it, we're good. If you can sell me on how it works in your paradigm, we're good. If you can sell me on why that's going to be coincidental, we're good. I'm I'm skeptical. I don't just say, oh yeah, sure. No, you can throw that fireball down the street. It's fine. Yeah. But if you can reasonably make those connections, because to me, that's where the true creativity of mage works, right? Because at the end of the day, we're using very broad terms even going back to first edition where you had like here's the instrument that i use for each sphere you're still at the end of the day using a very broad term to represent what in the reality of the game is a very specific set of beliefs and practices right and we're trying to do that through a certain amount of shorthand so that we can successfully tell a narrative so we're not sitting around the table for five hours describing the hermetic ritual that your character's performing. You're just saying, well, I'm using pentacles and you yeah. know, <laughs> pentacles and stuff. Right. That's um, cool. And that's good enough to get you by. So then it becomes like, and again, this is where mileage may vary and where, where a different storyteller might take it in different fashions, but it becomes like, how close do you overlap? Or can you find a place where you do overlap? It's kind of the same thing as figuring out coincidental magic, right? Like if you can, um, the idea being that if you can sell it as a coincidence within the confines of the reality that's spilling around you, that you can sell it as a coincidence. Okay, so you're you're, you're not necessarily buying into the right. You're not so much adopting what you're doing. Got it. Right, you're not adopting their paradigm so much as you are couching your magic in the coincidence of the dominant reality. But again, you know that comes down to can you keep your shit together while this storm of effectively reality melting around you because while the sleepers don't notice you sure as hell do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> can you keep your cool enough to think straight enough to do that? And I've also been a fan. Um, I don't remember exactly where it's written. That's I trust you probably do, <laughs> but there's uh, some discussion a couple places, uh, if I'm not mistaken, mostly in second edition of paradox that marauders accumulate sort of just, rolling off of their back and hitting the, the mages nearby. So you also have that little problem to contend with while you're trying to figure out, okay, what are the rules here? So with some marauders, if you're talking like a quiet form marauder, right, who is walking around and like at the lampposts are turning into giant spikes with torches on them and like a car turns into a dragon, like you can pretty well suss out like, okay, what's this is this, this is a high fantasy paradigm. But if it's not something that's so blatant, 
or if it manifests in a way that maybe might be extremely blatant, but you just don't grok, that's not going to do you any good, right? Yeah. What happens when the lampposts turn into candy canes? There's right. Not a lot, there's not a lot of gravel gra- gra- <laughs> there. And, <laughs> right, and that's exactly. kind of interesting because it, it, to me, like at the end of Revised, we also get this weird throwback that they're like, oh, by the way, the Marauders have been waiting beyond Horizon. Since reality is cooled, it is no longer friendly to them. They're waiting to invade. This is something you have to deal with in a bunch of the scenarios in, in, in Ascension. And then we kind of get to this M20 interpretation. And to me, I would kind of divide it up into first edition and Revised someone chooses to become a marauder. They wrap themselves in quiet as some sort of defense mechanism. Whereas in second edition and kind of M20, one goes marauder. It is something that happens. You snap. I I don't think someone chooses to have a panic attack you, you, you pass right, a point. Just, it happens. Yeah. yeah. And in M20, it kind of, they return to plot devices. The specific, book specifically says to ignore most of the previous rules. Tended to drop in, cause havoc, and force characters to cope. We get the perceptualized marauders who let the madness slip out in small bits. They just see the world differently. And the actualized marauders who, again, have that reality-changing power around them and tend to create immediate problems. Uh, They are intended specifically as a cosmic joke. They see the whole of reality and it results in madness. The author says that they, this manifests the dementia of our age. It is someone who, who drops the pretense and embraces that all humans can do magic. It just comes in a very messy way. The thing I find kind of interesting about it is this is remarkably similar to the hermetic idea of the city of Pymander, where each citizen gets to determine their reality in accordance with their will. And I'm like, that's you've described marauders just thought you should think about that. Right. Uh, Ioka, maybe consider that. When you- well, and that's, and, and that's another thing that uh, makes all of this sort of very interesting is, is you start, as you delve into the marauders, you start to, or you can start to see them very much as a natural extension, not only of the tradition paradigm, but of any magical paradigm. Right. Because, you know, even, uh, if you take, for example, like the time motion managers of the of Iteration X, uh, you take that to its ultimate conclusion, you know, of uh, having this total control over existence because you have a total control over the placement of, of every subatomic particle. That could just as easily be a marauder's paradigm. You know, a marauder could be walking around and having every subatomic particle blowing up into these giant... Tony Stark-esque sort of holographic projections that they then are able to sort of futz with and change reality. I mean, it fits anywhere. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things that um, I overall see about them is, like most of Mage, I feel like the best approaches can be taken by figuring out what your baseline is and then peppering in a little bit of spice from each of those additions and maybe pour in a small, like a, just a little dash of revised because I got some issues there, but, you know, and, and also too, considering what role do you want them to serve? M20 does a great job of making them into, well, as you said, a plot device, right? Um, they're there to push the plot forward, but maybe that's not the only purpose you need them to serve, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because in M20 again the thing I have the one of the problems I have with them being in on the cosmic joke is that to me strikes against Mage's theme of hope if understanding necessitates madness 
I don't know. That doesn't seem that doesn't seem great. They are presented like simultaneously as strictly individuals, but they also bring back the Citrine, which is a group that just wants to kill mortals to make reality smoother. And the Butcher Street regulars who are just trying to deal and the Umbral Underground who are just trying to, to rescue people. Um, it, it does, though, kind of pair with the reworking of the Nefandi we get. Like, the Book of the Fallen is like, hey, there's no central power structures anymore. We don't have the cult of the star squid. Cthulhu isn't pulling the strings from beyond reality. And likewise, here, the, the marauders are not this giant group of well-organized people, which would always be kind of weird anyway. Yeah, right. uh, but it also fits in with M20's general... This is something... This is me reading between the lines, but I get a sense that M20 starts with a position of being skeptical of organized power. Um, yeah. And they got rid of all those in, in, from across all of the groups. M20 does return to the Marauders as Madness, which is fine. It's a direction to take, but I do kind of like some of those other additions takes on it being a reflection on this is what the pursuit of power does. This is a twisted reflection of what the traditions want. This is what happens uh, if it goes too far. Uh, one of the things you and I talked about was we don't necessarily like it strictly being a meditation on mental illness. Right. Um, it is It is not just the crazy faction or it is not just the yeah the delusional faction or something at the Ascension War. Right, like, they're not the Malkavians of Mage. Yes. So what do you feel uh, if, if someone said, hey, Travis, we want... We want more text on the Marauders. What, what to you do you see them bringing to the table in M20 or as an extension of M20? I mean, at the end of the day, I think the core of what makes them the most interesting uh, is pathos. And that often manifests uh, through the through the veil of, uh, of either mental illness or trauma, right? Particularly when we're talking about like how the, man, how the Marauders have been treated. Most of the time, uh, you know, barring the first edition, warriors of of the wild, and I think that all of those permutations of marauder fall under it when you put them underneath the umbrella of pathos. Your passion for power can drive you to quiet, just like your passion for your family, who you witness uh, die horribly, you know, get get shoved in a fridge horribly, can drive you to quiet. Just like your passionate response to the disconnect between the information that your brain is receiving and the way that your consciousness is interpreting it. There was a thing, I, I definitely want to make sure I'm not making light of this because that's not my intention to do so. But there was a bit that I heard where Bob Goldthwait was talking about his final conversations with Robin Williams. And then uh, dealing with kind of the aftermath of Robin Williams' death. And he's, as he's de describing what Louis Body Dementia does to a person, uh, which is a terrible, horrible affliction to suffer, it changes the way you interpret the, inf you, the your brain is no longer a reliable narrator. You know, you're, you, you are processing information in such a fashion that you cannot count on your own thoughts anymore. Um, and so quiet as a vehicle for that, from a storytelling perspective, to me is very compelling. Um, but again, is that then, then, it, then when you start looking at it through, through that lens, then it becomes, where do we put the bumpers on it for a play experience? Where do we, where do we go where we're not gamifying or, um, making light of these conditions that are extremely severe, right? And where do we go where the, where do we find 
that these ideas that when you sit around talking about them are very compelling, where we find that exploring those at the table is of value and of merit. And that's where I think it's, you've got to really be handling that carefully and you have to be mindful about it and you have to be uh, deliberate about the decisions that you're making. And some tables aren't going to want to do that. And for those tables, I think it's better that they maybe just show up, uh, kick up some magic dust, make the world a little bit interesting for you, and then you know, piss off back into the ember or whatever, right? And they're fine in that context. But I think if you want to delve deep into there, there's a lot of good storytelling that can be mined uh tragic tragically comically as long as you're not in the sense of ridicule but in the sense of like legitimately looking at the the lighter side of divorcing oneself from reality right and i do think there is something powerful in the lens of satire and reflection to have a marauder who reveils who resees society in a particular way that is illuminating so like when you talk to staying late at work and he goes oh i see thine lord has demanded his vassal additional wage work to sup this eve and you're like oh shit i am kind of a digital surf that, <laughs> right yeah th that is that is funny haha -ha, but to me also funny uh-oh <laughs> right and, and to me the the marauders generally tend to bring both of those it is when we just do the funny haha -ha, uh for extended periods that to me it kind of doesn't fit in the game anymore right you're um, losing sight of kind of what it is it's it becomes a, it's it's very easy anytime you're portraying any of this stuff it's very easy yep. to, be, to dive into fish milk territory you know and that's why uh when i put out um i've done two books for storytellers vault that deal with mental illness i did well i guess three technically i did weighing the cost which is a mage adventure in which the primary antagonist is a marauder uh, he's the marauder that appears in this short story that i wrote for uh, Truth Beyond Paradox, the character who becomes a marauder in the last page of that book. Sorry to put a, a final, a fine point on a story that was written to be ambiguous. He becomes a marauder. Um, and so he's sort of the antagonist of that story, and he's meant to elicit your sympathy. He's never viewed, at least in the text, he's it's certainly never my intention uh, to, to present him as comedic in any way. He's a completely tragic figure. It's heart. It's a heartbreaking story. It's about exploring that pathos and about looking at him and going like, oh shit, if that happened to me and I had those tools at my disposal, would I do the same thing? And questioning that for the self, right? So that's one way to, to use them. But in that, I talk very, I have a sidebar where I talk about like right up front, like, hey, mental illness isn't funny. It's not a joke. And if you need help, you know, here's some resources for you. But uh, because I think it's important, I think using safety tools when you're talking about these characters is important. And then uh, I did the Nahima books for uh, Vampire, which are about, um, it's like a little off-handed mention in the Gehenna book of Malkav's sister. So I made a bloodline based on Malkav's sister, like getting out of the prison they threw her in the ember because she was, her fits would be so bad the way it was described in Gehenna that it would literally melt reality around her. So there's an argument to be made that she might be the canonical first marauder. <laughs> and they, I wrote them a discipline that effectively does that. It's kind of like if you took chemistry and vicissitude and, and, and dementation and bundled it all up into one thing that could also affect space and time. That's what their power does. And so dealing in that, uh, again, you know, I, I felt the need to call 
attention to it. Like this isn't funny. And you can have moments of levity and all sorts of dark shit, but the the it's dark shit. Don't forget that it's dark shit. <laughs> you know? so, so for you, it seems like you're positing though a you said you said a little bit back that marauders are the byproduct of people's hubris and a single-minded goal towards something and not noticing seemingly how magic changes them. So right. it, it seems like we could have two separate things. We have mages whose magic drives them to what we would consider to be insanity. They do not realize that they have lost touch with their humanity because that's in some way kind of what the the three different quiet states are. But then on the other end, we have people who have mental illnesses who happen to have awakened. Like, right. I don't know about you, but it makes perfect sense that like a mage would have general anxiety disorder or something sure. like that. Or you could have a depressed um, syndicate member or something like that. So... I think that, and I think that one of the things, one of the most compelling stories to me would be a mage, a, a everyday average mage looking at a marauder who has had the interaction with the power, with the quiet, whatever brought that quiet about and be like, oh man, I am a bad day. I am a bad day away from that. Mm -hmm. you know the killing I mean? joke as it were for me. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, because I, I do think that there's absolutely merit to playing a mage who is not a marauder and is dealing with mental illness. And I don't think that, I think that it, it is folly to tie marauders to mental illness as, as one ties the Malkavians, for example, to mental illness. Right? Yeah. I, I like your description um, of them being somewhat disconnected in their pursuit of power and that right. being it. And because to me, the marauders that we have, that doesn't need its own faction. Right. Like that, that can just happen um, right. to anyone. And, uh, to me, the, the factional part about it is one chooses to be a technocrat, one chooses to be a nefondist, one chooses to be a traditionalist, but the way the marauders are often presented is you get maraudered, like marauderdom happens, like happens to you. To you. Yeah. Right, right, um, exactly. And, and it, it's kind of interesting in M20, we do get we do get the first hints of a good quiet system in that there's a state tied to each point in the metaphysical trinity. You have denial for an excess of stasis, morbidity for an excess of jor, madness for an excess of dynamism. We did an entire episode on that. Um, but the thing that the thing that got me about it is, one, there's no upside to it, right. if that makes sense. To me, I think a lot of archmasters always have a low level of quiet, and that is useful. One dot sure. of denial, you get to ignore distractions. One knot right. of madness, you are hyper-inspired. One dot of jor, it is so much easier to take a life. Right. Like, you just get to, to skip through that. I like the idea of the fall being beneficial up until you hit that point, which right. is what happens in games like Call of Cthulhu, uh, Fate of Cthulhu. A lot of the games I would list have Cthulhu <laughs> in the title. But, but to me, the problem that we get with M20 is... Uh, you roll a whole bunch of paradox dice, you get a couple of points of quiet. And the mechanics say, okay, um, as you work off those points of paradox, you can slowly bring your reality back into convergence. The problem with that is you've already blown those points of paradox, so you're now working off the rest of your pool. And it also indicates that there are other ways that you can enter quiet. Severe trauma, someone, uh, a a backlash with the mind sphere, someone mucking around in your head or vice versa. And to me, I always wanted more information on that. So, like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, more mechanical weight yeah. that supports the idea that it might be no fault of your own. Somebody might 
be in your head using mind magic, perhaps to do something as simple or beneficial as uh, keep you together while you are in, let's say, let, let's go, you know, old school Ascension war. you, your buddy gets grabbed by the men in black. You're sitting across town in the Chantry. I think there's a, actually this, is basically kind of what happens in the intro fiction m20 uh you're sitting across on the chantry backing them up with my magic like don't worry hold it together we're coming for you i'm gonna hold you in place and then you botch that role there should be some sort of mechanical support for how to do that right for how to rep represent that causing a quiet um there should be some sort of me mechanical now again it becomes when you get into trauma and gamifying it, I am much more of a fan of the player being able to say, I'm going to elect to suffer X, Y, or Z consequence for this situation. Or I think it would be cool for my character if this response came about because of X, Y, or Z. So there's, there's also like, you want a mechanical option that mm -hmm. somebody can lean on, not a mechanical dictate. And okay. I think that's one of the things that has prevented that from becoming mechanized, right? Is because you don't want to say, oh, well, your character suffered a terrible mental anguish. So now you got to roll some dice, you know, because that's very icky uh, and a number of reasons, but. That is my relationship with humanity and vampire. Right. The fact that it's a stat that you roll against to right. me separates you from the consequences like right. almost a bit too much, but I, I do like the, yeah, I want a mechanical option because sometimes I'm tired and I can't think through what would happen. And, and I like the, like the example you give. So I'm in my buddy's head. He's picked mabbed by the MIB. Information is being forcefully solicited from him in very unpleasant ways. I am still in that person's head. Either I botch a roll or they finally snap or the technocrats do something. I am stuck in his head for a protracted period of time. Eventually I remerge with myself across town, the psyche reconnects and the storyteller goes, hey, we have this quiet mechanic. This sounds like you're going to go to quiet too. Alternatively, what do you think would happen to your character? You're allowed to take either. What do you think that quiet mechanic should kind of look like? Do you have any thoughts of what, I'm, I'm not asking you to spin up a system, but like, what do you think elements of it would be? Oh, I mean, I would say probably like willpower is a thing in the world of darkness, right? So, I mean, that would probably come into play. I would say that Paradox can, can come into play, but I don't necessarily think it should. If I had to just like come up with like a, a, a guideline that people could use their tables, I would say anything that has mechanical weight that has taken place in that scene should be able to be leveraged against it, right? So for example, this scenario that we're spinning up, right? This person who's being interrogated in, in nasty, nasty ways by the technocratic union, there are going to be dice rolls that are going to take place during that mm -hmm. scene, right? So you've got damage being done. You've got successes being accrued by the by the opposing force. You bought your roll. Now those successes are going to create a pool of, of, of consequence. And I think it would be cool if you had a system where you could say, here's this pool of consequence that now because the two of you were doing this mind magic stuff, you are sharing. How would you like to divide that pool of consequences? Because there's no reason why in Mage that some of those couldn't come out as physical damage to the Mage on the other side of town, mm -hmm. right? I mean, <laughs> you hop out and you have a migraine and a nosebleed. You have taken two points of damage. Yeah. Or alternatively, you gain two points of quiet. To my mind, the best design, if you're going to work something into an existing engine, the best design is something where you are 
adding as little as possible to the parts that are already moving. So a repurpose of the moving parts is what I would advocate for. I have a a lot of feelings about this regarding just paradox in general Mm -hmm. as well, because I think what we need and what we have not really gotten at all in 25, 30 years of of mage is a, at least a storyteller's screen worth perhaps more of just tables of potential paradox effects. Because uh, when Maze the Awakening came out, the thing that turned me off to that so much at first edition, and I have since softened on it, but mm-hmm. the thing that turned me off so much about it in first edition was this mechanic that you could just sort of take paradox as physical damage. You always had that option. Mm-hmm. You could always say, oh, I'm just going to break an arm and yeah. move on with my life and still keep throwing fireballs down the street. Like, no, dude, like we need something else that we can leverage here. Um, I'm all for player agency. I'm all for you getting to pick your poison, as it were. But I think we, I think if we had a sort of a guide, one thing I would want to see, like if a Marauders book came about for M20, is just endless lists, tables, sure, things you can roll on. Why not? Um, people like to roll dice. But at the end of the day, it's a list of effects that would fall under your three types of quiet and what and then each level. You know, so, you know, if you took each level one to five of quiet for each of your, and you made 10 potential effects of engaging in that level, you know what I mean? That's what I'm, I'm shitty. 150. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 150 traits there. Right. And then you do the same thing with your paradox backlashes and you do it at, you do 10 potential side effects of a paradox backlash at every rating one to 20. And you just, you give those to storytellers and you say, have at it. Because the best times I've ever had in Mage was when somebody rolled a big paradox backlash and I hit them with something they had no idea to expect. Like, oh, your uh, eyes are now backwards in your head. You also benefit from effectively dark vision. So you can see the back of your optic nerve and the stuff going on back there. Um, and to everybody else, you just have no whites in your eyes, but for you, it's this horrifying experience of gazing into your own brain meats, you know, or my personal favorite four dudes in baseball, matching baseball uniforms that say reality zero, zero across the back of them, uh, show up and just beat the pucky out of you with baseball bats. They don't speak. They don't make noise. They just walk up and hit you until you have suffered enough damage to, buy off your paradox backlash right vital question uh are you picturing clockwork orange or are you thinking more the baseball furies I'm both baseball furies okay, 100%. Just checking. yeah the, the warriors is a much superior piece of cinema and i will i will die on the hill the list of additional <laughs> gangs that were brought up during the the mmo that they developed is ridiculous i am i'm certain it is it is it is gigantic and each one is slightly lamer than the last Um, i i like the way you present it because to me like paradox is real is the scar tissue of the reality outside of the mage where quiet is the scar tissue of the reality inside of the mage so uh in your in your scheme how do you burn off quiet or what are a couple ways? Because you don't want one core mechanic, sorry. Right, yeah. sure. I would say the biggest component, the easiest quote-unquote way to get rid of quiet would be time. You know, the idea that time heals all wounds. If your quiet is just a paradox thing and it's just a temporary quiet, you spend enough time being a good little mage 
and not poke in reality. It will eventually just ease itself back into the universe and everything will sort of, because I do very much, I maybe run a little too far with the metaphor of the tapestry sometimes. And when I describe paradox to new players, one of the ways I like to describe it is reality is this whole tapestry of interwoven truth. And when you cast magic, you are sticking your fingers in between the sort of threads of that tapestry and you're twisting. And paradox is the wrinkles that show up at the top of that tapestry when you twist it's going to happen Mm -hmm. like things are happening because you are doing it it's not you're not working your magic in a vacuum and so as paradox whatever that paradox response is whether it be a physical flaw or a quiet manifestation enough time it wants to be taught right it wants to be taught tight not taught like learn it wants to be pulled tight so it will eventually, barring you screwing with it, will eventually just heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem is, may just keep picking at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, to, to you, I have two thoughts on this. One, are there such things as permanent quiet manifestations? I, I like the idea that in mage, there are two ways to be a mage that has no fingerprints. So some mages are full of resonance. Some have paradox flaws that follow them around, but they are perfectly together on the inside. And you can see someone who puts very little uh, magical juice out into the world, and that can either represent that they are very subtle in their arts or taken by quiet. Do you feel that there would be permanent quiet things? I feel like it makes sense that it's like, hey, to you, all Boku still exists as a brand. And whenever you see Coke, it is another discontinued brand. And it's just that small persistent reminder that will almost never come up and play. But to you, are there permanent little quiet manifestations that wouldn't quite make you a marauder? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, having like, I, I love the idea of permanent gremlins. I love, I love the idea of permanent paradox flaws. I love the idea. I've always given um, my players, it, when I'm ever, whenever I'm in a campaign, I don't do this in one shots or stream. Yeah is it's it, there's no point to it but if i'm in like a campaign i always give my players an option if they get over i think it, i think 10 is usually the threshold i yeah. run with if they get over 10 points paradox they can drastically reduce the severity of that backlash by taking a small but permanent paradox effect watching players dive face first into that over and over again brings me no end of joy it it, it soothes my inner dnd gm <laughs> you know to say oh no i'll take the red eyes yeah absolutely red eyes one point of permanent paradox and and you're saying my face won't turn inside out done sold yeah. um you know? <laughs> so you also mentioned that you don't like the idea of players being able to take essentially unlimited paradox in the form of damage so I try and keep the metaphysical space between Mage the Ascension and Mage the Awakening separate. Yeah, and absolutely. Mage the Awakening, you take on paradox. What would you think about a mage taking on quiet, where a mage's arete is the ability to which they can safely control reality? Mages, their grasp is always beyond their reach. They can grab at the skeins of reality and tug. It just will right. not be a fine manipulation. It's like kicking a drum instead of hitting it with a mallet. What do you think about a thing where a character needs five extra dice and for that moment they tap into their infinite cosmic potential as a shard of the pure one or as a part of the next layer of humanity and they just let go with all of the constraints their avatar has taught them and that they have as a mage and they just grab at that bucket of power and in exchange they get a point of quiet. They directly touch the cosmos 
No, I dig that. I, yeah. And, and I, I like the idea of uh, furthermore, I'll go a little further. I think that mages should be able to accept paradox and effectively take on paradox the way that you spend quintessence. I think if you want to charge up that spell and you're like, I don't have any quintessence to burn, but you know what I can do? I can just let reality do whatever it wants to me for this. I think you should be able to do that. I also think that as this whole conversation, we've been talking about quiet as if it's something separate from paradox. Mm -hmm. And this is probably just my hardcore second edition roots talking. But to my mind, quiet is just another form of paradox. Having said that, I think that there's ways that I think there should be means by which you can acquire it that are not necessarily paradox driven. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, there's also things, I also think there's things you should be able to acquire paradox for that aren't necessarily like I casted a spell and got some paradox, you know, uh, hanging effects, things along those lines. So how do you system, how do you make a system around that? I've used a lot of like, you know, best judgment at the table stuff, but I think it'd be really cool way to explore some different mechanics about like, how do you commodify paradox? How do you commodify the risk of paradox? How do you funnel everything through this core? Again, it's about, to my mind, the best designs are about you take that core moving part of the engine and you extrapolate from it rather than bolting extra shit on it, if that makes sense, if that's followable. You know what I mean? Um, You're trying to find extensions as opposed to things that are kind of made from, once again, whole cloth, seemingly. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, one of my sort of things that I pushed back on about Revise a lot was the introduction of resonance mechanics, not necessarily because I don't think that that's a dope idea, because I do. I just think there's better ways to reflect it than by adding a bunch more traits that now I got to keep in fucking mind whenever I'm casting a spell. I think it's much better to find a way to filter that through, through what's existing. I think really the, the mist again, you know, I realize I'm being an armchair quarterback on Tuesday, but the, to my mind, the best way to address that is to treat resonance almost like an instrument. So in the sense that as you are describing your spell to me, I need to know, you know, what instruments you are applying and I need to know what resonance you're using. You know what I mean? I need to know what your intentions are. You know, if you look at like real world magical practices, not that I am by any fucking stretch, like a real world magic expert, but like, if you look at the belief structures, a lot of, a lot of magic is driven by you know, there's, there's core things, right? Don't be a dick to other people or it's going to come back and bite you in the ass and your intentions are going to affect your spell. Like those seem to be kind of universal, right? <laughs> Among anybody who believes in the real world in any sort of supernatural. So I think your resonance really should fall more under the same uh, umbrella as instruments because it's a descriptor for what you're trying to do with your spell. So sitting down at the table and casting that effect, um, where does that resonance then pop up? Can you can you give me an example of of what that would look like? At- sure, I'll give you I'll, I'll give okay. you a real world example from one of my games. I had a character who so back when I, I ran this long epic game that had uh, nine players, uh, one from each tradition, and um, as I was young and poor and a, a blackmail or bribable, I guess I should say GM. Um, so for example, we would play in Denny's. So I would give out experience points at one per dollar of value when people bought me food. Mm -hmm. If somebody brought me a carton of cigarettes, I would give them 200 experience points. If I ran out of cigarettes, I would bum cigarettes from people for experience point of peace. And our verbena 
was absolutely had no problem whatsoever with just walking in and slapping down like two cartons of cigarettes when they wanted a new sphere. <laughs> we're just like, here you go. And but so they became pretty powerful pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, they get to the point where they're like, I want to do a seeking for RTA5. I'm like, all right, cool, dope, let's do it. And we do that seeking, and it all comes down at the end of the day to this one die roll to sort of see how well they're getting it because the, the player is not quite putting together kind of what the messages I'm putting down. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, well, I will give you a willpower or, or an intelligence cult. I'll let you pick. And you know, he's like, I got eight willpower. I got this, mm-hmm. you know, and just, and just Yahtzees, but like in a bad way. I mean, we're talking like, it was like seven ones and a two or some <laughs> shit was, was the role. And I was they like, were all right. ones and they were somehow low ones. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, here's the deal. I will let you, take the new dot of arte and spend the experience points but your avatar is going to lay a, a geese on you he's like all right what what is it and i said uh you can no longer use your magic to do harm and he sat and he's like all right i need to think about that like a lot and i'll get back to you so finally the next week we get together we play he says i'm, I'm down for it and for the rest of that campaign about another year and a half his life five verbena never hurt somebody with magic again did all sorts of fun stuff to get around that like what if i just take these men in black and turn them back a hundred thousand years evolutionarily i don't want to harm them i don't want them to be in any pain but i just want them to be neanderthals because that's going to make using their you know machine guns and cell phones real difficult or whatever the technology mm-hmm. was that you know they're not going to be able to drive a specter limo at me because they can't drive because they're Neanderthals. And I was like, all right, bet you're not hurting them. That's fine. You know? And so things like that, but that's kind of an example, I guess what I'm saying is where now the intent of that magic has to be considered when you're casting that spell just as much as, uh, and I use a dagger and I make a little nick in my forearm for the blood I need for my focus. Right. So it, it, it then becomes a living part of the character. It, that was not specifically like tied to a resonance per se, but I think you could just as easily fold that in. You see what I'm saying to that kind of a description as opposed to, and then you would have, do you assign resonances per sphere? I don't, I think that's probably a little too much. Mm-hmm. I think you say, these are the resonances I prefer to work with. And maybe, you know, even you, you want to get people love having those little crunchy little flaws and things like that. You know, you could have a set of flaws that you build where it's like, if you, uh, you know, suffer a penalty when you're using this resonance, it's going to be a two point flaw. If you, if you cannot use this resonance, it's going to be a five point flaw. You know, something along those lines, right? Oh, interesting. So uh, resonance is now something that has to be worked in as right. opposed to you, it's just you, a, okay. You were, I'm, say, I'm saying that's a thing you could yeah. do, right? As a way of bringing resonance into the table without making it this, you have a resonance of one to five, and now I got to keep track of what quintessence you picked up. Got it. So resonance really? <laughs> is now the term for a family of things that can right. affect an effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. like an affect and effect. effect. Um, right. So it, so it also seems like one like thing that. that comes out of our conversation where if this is if this is detaching from reality in pursuit of power, marauderdom now becomes, again, something that at some point a, a character chooses right. as opposed to it, be, to it happening to you. Do you feel that that is the, the natural outcoming of that? Because to me, I have a preference 
for that, I always like the idea that it is the character's choice. It, it does very strongly cut the tie with mental illness, which I am personally fine with. And I think sure. quiet does that great. And I think there should be mage specific illnesses. I think if you have mind two or three and life two or three and have lived for four centuries, there are literally maladies that only mages can have. Sure. <laughs> I, I would agree. I would agree with all yeah. of that. And what I would say to that is I think personally that narratively it should be player agency but i do think that na- that the narrative window should be open for a jarring experience if that makes sense right and i also think there's there's some conversation to be had one of my biggest complaints about mage to the point where i have just ignored it on live streams that i've run is the idea that that the call is a one way trip i think that uh, my biggest complaint about the nefandi is that they are they're the one place where the core conceit of mage fails. They There is no hope. You have gone too far. And I don't like it. Uh, I don't like it. I also don't like the idea that Marauders is a one-way trip. Now, does that mean that you have to gamify it? No, Vampire did this did a great job for about 20 years of never telling you how to get to Golconda. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a state you can pursue. It's a, it, it can be the focus of a campaign. But it's up to the individual storyteller to decide what does that look like um, at my table. I think the same should be uh, it should be explicit for Marauders and Nefandi personally. Uh, so to you, there is a a path of madness and a path of descent, whose sure. apex is this Golconda-like state, which. We may not be fine with, but in one case, you get to experience the knowledge of true oblivion or the or, or true control, and in another, oh, yeah. No, no, no. What I'm saying is okay. there should be a way back. Uh, okay, got it. A, it should not be a permanent state in arbitrary truth, particularly in a game about there is no arbitrary truth. You know, the idea that uh, you cannot, once you have stepped through that call, there is no force that can save you. That sounds like something that people say to justify horrible things they do to other people. That doesn't sound like a metaphysical truth. You know, once you've become a marauder, there's no saving you. Again, that sounds like something you say to justify just before you put a bullet in the back of somebody's head, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a metaphysical truth. And I've flown in the face of those at the table in in two ways. I've run a game where in that massive game I was talking about, uh, one of the characters actually started started off as a marauder, and their first time working together as a group and kind of overcoming, figuring out how to make all their paradigms play nice with one another, mm-hmm. was to reach past the wall of paradox that was in his mind and and bring him back to the front. What did that look like? Oh, it was a long ritual process that each mage involved talked about. There, it was kind of almost like a like a relay race okay. really where they were kind of moving things back and forth as we, as each sphere was being brought in. Uh, they were using life, mind, prime, spirit, entropy, and, oh, and time. Yeah. Life, prime, mind, spirit, entropy, and time all came into play during that. And take that um, matter. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, the other thing that was fun about that, the great opportunity that provided me as a storyteller was three years later when they got into the big battle that they have been working toward this whole campaign. These these are all masters. They roll into Autochthonia. They fi- have found out that the that the the machine is corrupt, mm-hmm. and they're going to go in and you know they're going to go out like you know 
Butch and Sundance. They're going to, they're going to go out, but they're going to take this machine out with them. And as soon as they hop out and their Akashic jumps into their fighting stance and they are ready to start the fight, this marauder that they saved turns on his lightsaber and shoves it through the Akashic's back because he and I had had a conversation six months prior about, wouldn't it be neat if they didn't actually completely cure you? (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you kind of always had that little bit of, the Darth Vader you thought you were uh, hiding in the back of your head. Uh, so, um, so, you know, then, so it, it makes it, it makes for a good story. So it sounds like this is Marauder as adjective as opposed to Marauder as noun. Um, one is currently Marauder, as it right. were, uh, or one is currently mad, and that is something that you can come back from. It's hard. Um, right. It could be one of those things where in the same way that there are ways to lop off points of per minute paradox, but they are generally not fun. That Right. And I would see it as more of a thing that where you don't, from the developer side, from the writing side, you don't make that mechanic. You leave that up to the storyteller to say. But when I think when you, when from the book, you are saying this is immutable. I think you're robbing everybody of an opportunity for a great story. I think you are undermining the core conceits of mage. I just think it's a mistake to do that. I think saying functionally, you can say in world, as far as anyone in your tradition is concerned, this is a one-way trip, but whether or not it is, that's up to you. And I'm even fine with like, and here's some ways you might want to look at handling it. That's fine too. Cause they've done that. I think with Galconda a little bit over time. Yeah. But, and I think it's you know. one of those things where there is a realm of mechanics, which I just call directional mechanics, where, for instance, you do not say you need to spend six months at an ashram to burn off a point of permanent quiet. You say something like to burn off a six point of quiet requires persistent role playing, representing a character coming to terms with this that generally is going to take at least three major plot beats and the recognition that they need to change as a person or something like to me, you can right. kind of give the soft list. Um, right. You, you give a strategic level as opposed to a, a tactical level. Um, right. Same thing with the Nathandi. We yeah. did a thing with the technocracy reloaded actual player and where Jax was uh Witterslandi. And at the end of the day, the way that that got cured was that their mentor effectively self-sacrificed and turned their own soul into a new avatar uh, and sh- and sheared off the old avatar mm-hmm. in the process. So like, that's not something that is like, I'm going to write a rope for, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that's a big it's epic not story going moment, appendix. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think you should allow for stuff like mm-hmm. that at the table. And I think that it should be encouraged, for, but my point being is I think that that stuff should be not even necessarily encouraged, but sh- permission slips should be given to storytellers for those kinds of stories in the text. Because if, if, if there's ever a game where absolutes need to be avoided, I think it's mage, you know, it's, it's a game about hope. It's a game about overcoming. It's a game about breaking down those barriers. Do you have a feeling on where you think the Marauders lie kind of within the cosmology of Mage? Because one of the things that always threw me off is Nefandi are a one-way valve for the Avatar. It's the only thing in the game, really, where the Avatar goes through a thing. You've got Gilgul and you've got Stepping Through the Calls. Um, You've got turning into a Marauder, which is fundamentally where the mind, for lack of a better term, of the Mage snaps. And the Avatar just goes, okay, I'll... I'll work with this. Um, right. so we I'll figure of, it out. Yeah. yeah. So we have the dynamic and the um, entropic angle taken, but we never really get a static version of that. We never get someone becoming a servant 
of the Weaver, do you think it makes sense to pull the Nefandi and the Marauders away from being anything in the metaphysical trinity, or alternatively, that we do need a static representation right. of excess? Or Two things. I would say the yeah. static representation is probably sleepers. But okay. secondly, I think that... I do think that they should be divorced from that trinity mm-hmm. because I don't necessarily see oblivion is not what I have ever taken the worm to be. Okay. Oblivion is not what I've ever taken the calls to be. Now I like the idea that is presented in the book of the fallen that the Nefandi for whatever various reasons want to end, end the universe. They want oblivion. And and I, per, I particularly like the idea that there are many Nefandi running around who think that, it, that they're doing the right thing that I think that it's very difficult in 2022 to look around and completely write off or ignore or dismiss the perspective that maybe reality needs to be taken out and just shot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like humans do terrible shit to one another and they have the whole time they've been here. Um, so I get that. I'm not saying it's a noble pursuit, but mm-hmm. I can understand that. Um, I can you understand, understand it even if you don't agree with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Same thing with the Marauders. I can understand the idea of saying like the reality is so fucked. I'm just going to go into my little bubble and fuck everybody outside of it. I can get that perspective. I get the perspective of the traditions. I get the idea that each person's individual freedoms should be valued, even if in the lens that we're in socially in 2022, you know, and it's very easy to look at the technocracy and say, you know, wow, you have really screwed the pooch. You had everything. You had the whole world at your feet and you just kept grabbing and wanted more. So you can sort of peg these all as like a philosophy that at the very least is relatable and understandable and you can sort of get. So I don't think that there's a merit to necessarily trying to pin them down harder to any of the metaphysical sort of things. Um, And I don't think there's merit to necessarily pulling them away, though I would argue that there might be some merit to sort of pulling all of the mages away from a direct alignment to those. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to that, presenting that metaphysical trinity, if you want to tackle it at all, as a series of forces that are pulling at those mages, again, through resonance, but not in a gamified fashion, in a more abstract fashion. And the interesting thing there is this now frees up any mage to choose to be aligned with any aspect of the metaphysical trinity. And to me, that should always have a benefit. There should be a a mage that in the same way you can have the the totem background, which I much prefer just a spirit patron, you can have a chorister who has two dots of quiet because they have a tie with the dynamic and, and creative force of the umbral lord of a particular saint who happens to embody creativity. And in exchange, they get this magical boon. They get access to free quintessence. They can absorb one extra point of paradox a week, but they will always have this one to two point essentially quiet that will always be following them around or alternatively this residence and resonance in the form that you did as being a small geesh that you now have to play with. We've talked over a lot. Do you have any thoughts on how you wish people were using marauders in games? So we kind of talked about there's a lot of space beyond mental illness and that that can happen to anyone. And there's no reason to put them all into one thing that we right. call a faction. We've also talked about it being a commentary on, hey, this is what happens when you take magic to excess. Are there any other uses that you feel that they can serve in a game or that you think people should be thinking of? That, hey, here's a use for for Marauders as a group that maybe you hadn't considered before. 
They're great for a cautionary tale. They're great for exploring omens or portents. They're okay. wonderful for that, right? They're wonderful for um, this is the end result if you follow this path. Not And not just for the mage, right? Uh, you could say, build a marauder. Like, let's say that you have a group that is currently their personal goal as a group is to rid their little corner of the world of the technocracy. They're going to make sure that there is no technocratic influence in their neighborhood. And you could say, okay, um, we're going to explore that edit taken to its furthest possible conclusion. And I'm going to drop a marauder in who embodies that paradigm. And I'm going to make you think about what you really want. Right. And, and again, I mean, what are we doing with all this? We're telling a story. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you want to, if you want to put it through that lens, I'm not saying you can't use the Marauders to be zany and weird. You can absolutely be like hardcore, like, you know, you can go who framed Roger Rabbit with them if you want to, you know, whatever that emotional beat you're trying to hit is whatever that point you're trying to drive home is. I think you can present that through the Marauders and make it compelling. I do think some of their uses would be more so than others. I think they're, I personally think they're better when it's driven by a pathos, when it's driven by some sort of emotional meaning, some reason. People don't go to excess for no reason. It may be a reason that was outside of their control. It may be a reason that's perfectly understandable. It may be a reason that you look at and you go, what? That's the thing? Mm -hmm. But there should always be something that has pushed someone because at the end of the day, they're an extreme. And, that, and I think that that's the best way to frame them. And that also seems to give us a space to contrast the Nefandi with the Marauders, where if the Marauders are, you cared too much and a bad thing right. happened, the Nefandi are, you cared too little and a right. bad thing happened, which kind of becomes complicated when like Nefandi are kind of minting other Nefandi out there, but it gives us another way to look at it that, again, is unmoored from that metaphysical trinity, which is beautiful when we can get something to match up, but often results in kind of shoving right. people into into weird corners. So Right, yeah, you're painting people into a corner they don't necessarily make sense. And again, I mean, you can have a Nefandis who their biggest weakness was they cared entirely too much. One of the worst things to be can be a person who cares because it hurts to care. It can be real bad to care. So it sounds like if there were a Mad Masks, which was going to be a hypothetical book that was put out by Black Dog eventually about something, talked to a bunch of different people who had a bunch of different ideas of what it was going to be. But right. it sounds like one of your first things would be you would like to see a more flexible or a more robust paradox system where yeah, paradox absolutely. backlashes backlashes give you more options. You would like to see a more enumerated list of quiet options, as well as mechanisms and guidelines for more ways that it can come about, as well as ways that you can get rid of it. I will just propose the arbitrary thing is paradox is what happens outside the mind of the mage and quiet is what happens inside the mind of the mage, right, um, sure. just to kind of make it easier. You would want commentary on, hey, marauders are not just a metaphor for mental illness, but also can come about in these other ways. Right. Also, also, Marauder is not a one-way trip. It may be hard to come back from, but it is. there is no metaphysical certainty to it. As well as with Nefandi, you would like to see alternatives to resonance as presented as just being an, an additional plus one, minus one modifier. Do you have any thoughts on what the role of the Avatar is to your maybe more broader version of what a Marauder is? 
the way I've always envisioned it is like literally seen it in my mind is that when the, when that switch flips and you officially become a marauder, you're no longer a mage who's suffering quiet. You are a marauder. It's almost as if paradox energy sort of forms this net around your mind. Okay. And your avatar is kind of the only thing that can pierce that net. And so that net is what is distorting the input that your brain is receiving. Okay. So the marauder is operating outside that net and it is able to translate to a varying degree, depending on how thick that net is or how severe your quiet is. It's able to translate what's happening outside to what you think is happening inside. And the higher your quiet goes, the worse that process becomes. Mm -hmm. So the avatar is kind of just imagine almost like I would imagine a, a marauder's avatar is terrified most mm -hmm. of the time because they're just kind of stuck on this ride. And if it's a low quiet situation, it's not too bad. Crap. I, there's a, there's a can over there of the soda that he thinks is gone. I have to go tell him real quick that that's Pepsi and not Coke or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes like, you know, you walk into a crowded city block and the Marauder has, now has to account for like literally everything that's walking around, around you, especially when you're talking about a mage, who may or may not be perceiving reality and up to nine fashions beyond the, you know, several senses that we have much more than five, you know, <laughs> senses that we actually all possess. It's got to be a harrowing experience, right? Because you're constantly trying to work as a translator for that. Mm. And that's not what, what the avatar is meant to do. So it's, it's kind of like, if you'll forgive the metaphor, because it's a little bit clumsy, but uh, like an overworked public defender or an overworked social worker. Like, you know, like I would love to help you. Um, you know, <laughs> but. Yeah. Or, or seemingly something like a, a teacher where it's like, oh, I thought I was going to instruct this, but it turns out I serve sometimes as more or less daycare for this. Right. And that is not what my training was in. That kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. And so how does that, how does that show up? And are other people able to, generally speaking in Mage, with a few exceptions, the Avatar is a very personal relationship. Mm -hmm. But I find it more compelling if almost like because of that, I think it would be cool if because of that separation, that wall of separation that the Avatar has to work through, if they're easier to access for other Mages, maybe even with Spirit Magic or something like that. Like you can, you know, and that also takes them from this force of nature that is absolutely inscrutable to now something that you can try to communicate with, which mm -hmm. to me also far more compelling. Now, what if the avatar doesn't want to talk? Avatar is too busy. Avatar is irritated that you're bothering it. Avatar maybe also like is getting a little bit twitchy, right? Because under a lot of stress. So now you've just opened up a laundry list of other potentially compelling stories provided that they figure this out, provided that they pursue it, provided they, provided they care enough to pursue it. You know, you've now opened up all these other narrative avenues for that marauder to, to occupy in the story. Because now it's not just a matter of, oh, we got to put this dude down before he melts a hole in reality, or we just have to weather the storm until he goes away. Now it's, do we try to fix this? Do we try to guide them away do we try to calm them down do we try to mitigate the damage that's being done here anything that moves characters into a position where they have to consider their approach 
I think is a good move. That's I'm one of my favorite things about, you know, the, this sort of revolution of D and I mean, it's not nearly as big of a revolution as people like to pretend it is, but this idea of like, you know, we're going to humanize goblins, for example. Great. Good. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I would like, I would love it when the players have to stop and think about, do we really want to kill this village full of goblins here? Or do we want to try to come to some sort of a peaceable arrangement with these goblins here? Anytime you can sort of encourage that level of reasoning at the table, I think it just makes for a more compelling story. Having said that, it doesn't take away the option if you just want to play a game where when marauders show up, we just run for the hills and try to grab as many slippers as we can and contain the damage. Nobody's saying you can't run it that way, right? So I think that more tools in the box is, I guess, what I would, the, the short version of the long thing I just said. And is there anything else you would want to be in your in your Mad Masks book? I would definitely like to talk about the effects on the mind of just magic in general. Like, do I think using magic should have some sort of Call of Cthulhu-esque cost to your mind? No, probably not. Mm -hmm. Do I think that living 10 times longer than the average human lifespan, watching all your loved ones die, dealing with, like, reality being assaulted and altered in ways that that human beings just can't comprehend we don't have the tools for i think that should probably have some effects and i think that exploring what those effects might be would be very compelling and interesting too and i think there's a way of doing it without adding a humanity track and also without demanding that everything just be a function of willpower roles um right absolutely somewhere in there so Travis, thank you so much for your commentary and uh, your insight and your uh, uh, tips on how to use the Marauders. Oh, thank you. Are there any other projects going on now that uh, that you would like our audience to know about? A couple things. If you hear this before the end of the M20 sale, I have a bundle on Storyteller's Vault that has all of my uh, M20 stuff I've done there to date, which is two adventures in the Caserify book. But it's only like a buck 50. So mm-hmm. um, I figured since Sonic's Path was going to do it, I'm going to, if they sneeze, I'm going to blow my nose. So uh, there's a bundle. You can get that stuff nice and inexpensively. Um, I did just put out a little thing that I am very proud of called Toxic Mutant Zombie Mayhem for Savage Worlds, which is my, uh, it's like a one sheet adventure. It's basically like eight pages long, um, but it's kind of my love letter to super schlocky, super low budget eighties horror. So we're talking class of Newcomb high type stuff by way of like a post-apocalyptic nuclear zombie wasteland. It's a lot of fun. If you're into that sort of thing, I would recommend picking that up. I do just want to take the opportunity since I have the moment we've been discussing it to remind everybody that like mental health is a thing that everyone struggles with from time to time. It is no different than your physical health in terms of uh, need for maintenance. And if you need any help for any reason, I highly encourage you to reach out to some professional to get that help. Whether it be, you know, there are hotlines you can call, there are websites you can look at. I'm sure Terry can throw some stuff in the show notes, but also, you know, talking to your regular uh, healthcare provider and saying, hey, can you recommend somebody for me to talk to if you're not comfortable having that conversation with your healthcare provider? Um, But don't ever uh, hesitate to get help if you need help, whether that be the big ones, you know, your anxiety, your depressions, or just like, hey, I'm not dealing so well because the world has been on fire for the last you know decade pursue it please you are worth taking care of if you would hit the gym if you would watch what you eat if you would try to stick to a sleep schedule if you would do anything to to 
keep your body running, your mind is just as, as important to uh, keeping things functional. So please, please, please never be ashamed and always uh, reach out to make sure you're taking care of yourself upstairs as well as down. Travis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been Mage the Podcast, where we like to stay at one point of dynamic quiet just to keep things interesting. Our show is made possible by our executive producers who include Buck Farmer, Oracle of People Who Can Actually Pull Off Hawaiian Shirts, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Well-Timed Power Outages That Allow Us to Escape from Uncomfortable Dinners, Jay Widener, Oracle of People Who Hiccup During Swearing-In Ceremonies, and Mikhail, Oracle of People Who Accidentally Dress Like a Groomsman at a Wedding and Keep Getting Awkward Introductions from the Family Throughout the Whole Thing. Additionally, Alex, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Berto, Boo, Boogers, 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 Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Schreiber, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsick, Elliot Osborne, Gargan Lenoir, George Lara, Guy Conan Stewart, LaBull, Isabel Castillo, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Biggs, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Josh H., Josh Heath, Carl Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aran, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Pukaji, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Rickard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Toman, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, W. Starter, and Zach Rules. Our shout-out is to Jeff Brin, who I know very little about, so I'm going to assume Jeff is the namesake of the town of Brine in Norway, which is 1,340 beautiful acres in southwest Norway and known for producing quality agricultural equipment, including plows and excavators. I have one story about Norway as a friend of mine in high school studied abroad there. He failed physics there twice, saying he was fine in English, but that the variables and parameters in his Norwegian textbook all used different letters. One day while visiting him, I stole his textbook and checked. All of the variables were named the same as in English. I also later lost that textbook. Sorry, Brent. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at matesthepodcast at gmail.com or at matesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash matesthepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.